Hello and welcome to the Anxiety to Confidence podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Booth, and I've been a clinical hypnotherapist since 2011. I specialise in helping people overcome anxiety and build confidence instead. This weekly podcast will cover a wide range of mental health issues related to anxiety, along with some helpful tips and suggestions that you can try at home. If you have any questions that you'd like answered in a future episode, then please head to www.anxietytoconfidence.com forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode and another episode of my guest series for 2021. And this week I'm really excited because we're joined by Simon. Now, Simon is a former athlete who at one point was an Olympic hopeful for Great Britain. And he's going to be talking to us about his journey and also what happened when injury meant that that dream was no longer a reality. This is a really interesting chat and I really hope you enjoy it. We get to cover a huge range of different things. So not only the sports performance and the injury, we also talk about things like perfectionism and we talk about his new career as a social media coach as well. So I really hope you enjoy this episode and a huge thank you to Simon for joining us for this week. So one of the reasons that I was quite excited actually when you were keen to come on as a guest is because you used to be a national athlete, is that correct? Yeah, not many people get excited about talking to me. Um, yeah, no, I, I, yes, I did. Um, so yeah, I was, I was a track and field athlete uh, back in my teens and, and very early 20s. Um, and I was aiming for being effectively an, an Olympian at one point. That was what my main aim was. Um, and my main aim was qualification and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but injury along the way hampered everything. Wow, okay. There's a few different things that I was kind of hoping to talk about around this. Mm-hmm. Um, so firstly, kind of the mental preparation for competition. Um, and then maybe in a bit, have a bit of a chat about how injury can change that. Because often with clients, I find that a big change in lifestyle, so like a change in their identity can be quite detrimental. So yeah, I, I get that. Definitely. Well, well, okay. So you want to talk, which, which one do you want to talk about first? Should we start with competing? So yeah, mindset was, was always interesting with competing, especially when I was younger. It wasn't something that was really spoken about um, back then. And so when I was competing, it's, especially in my early, early teens, there was, I was always beaten by one particular athlete. And I, I ended up getting into a mindset of, I'm turning up to be beaten by them. It was, it was really strange. I don't know why and I can, I can picture myself and how I used to think it. It was always like, oh yeah, I'll come second today. <laughs> I'll come third. It was never, oh yeah, I've got a chance of beating this particular athlete because they were just head and shoulders above me. They were nationally ranked, everything else. And things just hadn't kind of clicked for me. Uh, I think it was about 13 years old, 14 years old. And then one competition happened and I just kind of blew that person out of the water and not just in one event, but in every single event. And it was almost like a, a light bulb moment in my head. It wasn't oh yeah, I'm, I'm the best, I'm better than everybody else. But it was more of a, actually, you know what? Maybe I could be quite good at this and maybe there's more to it than actually just turning up and going through the motions, which is essentially what I'd kind of done up to that point. And even though I was still relatively young, it kind of helped me map out where I was going to go from that point onwards. Um, so yeah, so my mindset up to that point was very much, I'm going to get beat and my mindset 
beyond that point was, right, okay, I don't want to get beaten again. Um, and there's a very famous saying by um, Harold Abrahams, which they use in Chariots of Fire, which was, I don't train to come second. Although I'm a better loser, probably a better sportsman than Harold Abrahams was. I, I understand I'm going to get beaten, but I, don't, I didn't train to lose from that point on. This person who was always better than you originally, how often did you manage to beat them in the end? They gave up. Oh, no. So, <laughs> I, I kid you not, yeah. So the end of that season, you, presumably. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't like to think it was because I was beating them, but <laughs> um, maybe that was the case. They just kind of realised they weren't going to win every time because that particular person was quite cocky about it. So may, maybe that was the case. But yeah, within, I think it was within the, that season. By, by the end of that season, they kind of they disappeared. So yeah, so it, maybe they, maybe their mindset wasn't quite in the same way as as mine was from that point onwards. Whereas maybe it was something within me that made me keep going because I enjoyed doing the sport and I, I maybe something in the back of my head was I'm going to beat them at some point but I, I wasn't really thinking about that maybe it was in my subconscious. How did you deal with things like nerves when coming up to I don't know if there were particular events that you uh, were more nervous about or less nervous about or just the whole yeah event? yeah it's, it's strange so it wasn't always the really big events it wasn't always like the nationals or what have you things like that it was Sometimes you do a smaller event and there's different things you can do and you get called into the, to like a call room and you're not allowed your headphones, you're not allowed music or anything like that. And music was a big part of my training. I'd, I'd got a tip from Steve Backley, which was he used to have specific music that he would listen to for specific periods. So if he was training, he'd have a certain playlist. If he was um, actually going into a competition it, and that music would put him in the mindset of, the, of that right particular feeling. So, yeah, you'd, you'd get called into the call room and that'd be it. You couldn't have your headphones in or, or anything. You'd, they'd take them away from you. Some competitions where, the, where it was like that were certainly more nerve-wracking than, than other competitions where it's like, well, you're a big boy now. We know you're going to go through the call rooms and stuff like that, but we trust you to do the right thing, whereas smaller competitions sometimes they got a little bit officious, for want of a better way of putting it. And when they were like that, um, it was quite nerve-wracking. But doing the event that I did which was decathlon, the judges kind of followed you through the two days. So the person who would be judging you in high jump would probably be the same judges who would be judging you in, in the discus and so on and so forth. So um, that was quite nice. It was, you kind of built a relationship with them. So it didn't feel so, so daunting, but when it was individual events, definitely it was, um, it was a very different situation. But for me trying to cope with it, I don't know. I just, I, maybe it's just part of my personality. I, I just did. It, it was kind of one of those things. And maybe again in the back of my head, it was like, well, everyone's in the same situation. I can't. I can't change the situation. Um, so just crack on. I, I don't know. It. Yeah, I, I don't know. I never really had any coping me mechanisms. I wasn't like. Um, is it? Um, Paul McKenna has the tapping thing where you kind of try and take your mind off stuff, but. I never, never had any of that. I just, yeah, I just, I just cracked on. I just, maybe I just, I went into the zone. Uh, <laughs> one of a better way of describing it. Um, I'd mark out my run up from a high jump and just sit down and relax and chill and chat with the other competitors. Because, like I say, over two days, you get to know each other very well. And there's not, or back in the day, there wasn't that many decathletes, so you all knew each other. I think as well. Sometimes age has a factor because um, I've competed in horse riding probably since my late teens and I would mm. say that things like nerves and things are more of an issue now than they were when I was a teenager as a teenager I think it was all quite exciting and you were just in this situation that you were like cool let's get on with it 
but as you get older you start thinking a bit more about it and there's a bit more to lose almost as well particularly when you've gone to the effort of like driving yourself and your horse to an event <laughs> and paying yes, all the money for the entry fees and things there's suddenly yeah. this pressure to be like well I want to do well um, because otherwise it feels like it was a waste um, so I think a lot of those kind of thoughts that really do affect us when it comes to nerves possibly don't creep into a little bit older maybe or have yeah yeah I mean when I was when, in, in athletics when I was younger it was a lot older but nowadays when you turn 35 you watch classed as a master which is not old at all but whatever so you class as a master when you turn 35 and I, I fell out of athletics because of my injury um, and I came back to it when I was 30 and so um, when I started doing the master's events and definitely and you'll you'll be able to kind of connect with this yourself is I'd, I'd kick myself more if I didn't do as well as I wanted to do whereas when I was younger it was very much oh well I've not done as well as I, I wanted to do I'd look back at it look at where it'd gone wrong and then implement that whereas yeah as I got older it was more of a case of I've put all this effort in and I've come in and I've bombed out I've not cleared a single height in the pole vault and yeah what was the point of the last, <laughs> the last two days and how many weeks it was leading up to this event and what have you. So yeah, definitely as you get older. And for me, as I got older, I, I kicked myself more for not performing as well as I, as I knew I could, even though I was getting older. So I was never going to perform as well as I did when I was in my 20s. Yeah, it's a really interesting one for, for me as a competitor. And I often work with particularly dressage riders who have a lot of issues with anxiety before um, and then are often perfectionists. So then critique themselves horrendously afterwards as well. So a lot of the work we do is about kind of the whole process because yeah, coming away from it and having that kind of attitude doesn't really set you up that well for the next one. But at no. the same time, we all fall into those traps and it does happen. That's why, I mean, again, like I said, there wasn't really mindset coaches back then. Um, there were, but they weren't regularly used. I mean, nowadays I've got co athletes that I send to mindset coaches and things like that to basically kind of concentrate on certain thing, elements that they're struggling with. But Back then, I just had my coaches, and thankfully my coaches were, um, well, they were from Yorkshire, so they were blunt enough to, to kind of say what had gone right and what had gone wrong, but in a slightly nicer way, um, so that you could pick apart certain elements to go, right, what had gone wrong in the hurdles or what had gone wrong in the high jump and stuff like that. So, so yeah, like I said, just mindset coaches, though, just weren't, weren't there. I think it was just kind of something you had to work on yourself if you could find ways, which was for me was music definitely coming around to the injury then that stopped you mm. in the first place that's quite a big deal for somebody who identifies as an athlete to then find that they're not able to do that thing anymore how was it for yeah. you um again it was a bit of a take it in my stride kind of situation um maybe it's just the pragmatic side of me being i don't know maybe it's how i was brought up so i got this this injury and again maybe I just didn't realize how serious it was at the time I was doing high jump and in high jump you can change the length of your spikes and your shoes and um, it was a rainy day and I just didn't bother my my, my spikes were really blunt anyway um, and I just there's a lot of spikes in a high jump shoe because you got them in the heel and in the front of the foot and I didn't change them at all um, and so I was jumping and I, I jumped fine for the early heights and then when it got to more serious heights, you put more speed, more effort into your curve, you plant with your heel, and then you roll onto the ball of your foot and you take off. And I planted with my heel, and my heel went one way, my knee went the other, and my body went the other, and I, I tore my cruciate. Um, it wasn't a complete snap, but it was not pleasant. But I didn't realise what I'd done at the time. I went off and did the 4 by 400 metre relay because it was a club event, so I made sure I'd, I'd 
competed for the club, even though I pretty much walked over the line. <laughs> um, and then when I went to see the physio, he's like, yeah, this is your crew shirt. Um, and then further down the line, it was right. Okay. You can have an op or you can have rehab. And so I went the rehab route because I'm scared of operations. Um, and so, um, who knows what would have happened one way or the other way, really. Um, but obviously I fell out of athletics, but coping with it was, was strange. I'd done it since I was seven years old. So I loved athletics and I still love athletics, but it didn't feel like so much of a chore to step away from it. It was almost like, okay, this is, it's a rest. And I was very lucky in the fact that I was injured and that wasn't, that wasn't lucky by any stretch of the imagination. I'd lost out on all those dreams. There's a line in um, Field of Dreams where there's a, an age old um, baseball player and um, Kevin Costner says to him, how did it would kill a man to come that close to what he wanted to achieve? And he was like, going, how did it feel like? It was like, and he said, it's like seeing a stranger and they just whisp right past you. And as they walk past, you realize you recognize them, but you don't, you don't see them again. They're gone. And it, it was, it was coming that close to, to my dreams. I was really aiming for qualification for the Olympics within the next 12 months. Um, and to come that close was was heartbreaking, but I just I found another I found another passion, um, and and kind of delved myself into that. At the time, I was at university, and a few of my friends obviously realised I was down in the dumps, probably, um, although I didn't realise it myself, and would just said, "Do you want to come and try doing the university radio station?" And so I went off and did the university radio station with them, and kind of ploughed myself into that, and found another passion which is what has led to where I am today doing what I do now. I, I worked in radio for a long time as a presenter. I did TV presenting and all sorts of stuff and presented sports shows and things. So maybe I just, re- maybe like an addict, I just replaced one addiction with another. Yeah, maybe. Although um, it's a piece of advice that we often give is to find something else anyway. So um, it sounds like a healthy addiction if it was one. Oh, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. It's paid the bills. So, <laughs> so definitely a healthier one. Yeah, and something I've enjoyed enjoyed doing as well. What was frustrating is because I, I did try to come back. It wasn't literally I injured, walked away. I got injured, rehabbed, and then tried to come back again. And that's probably where more of the frustration was at the time, was that as I was trying to come back, and this is probably where I would have really benefited from someone like yourself back, back then, was I had this mental block with high jump. So I was a two-meter-plus high jumper. Um, and every other event was fine. My knee didn't really give me any jip and it didn't give me any problems when I was doing the high jump, but I wouldn't push it hard enough. So I could never, I could never scale the heights I was, or jump the heights I was jumping um, before the injury and high jumps are very high scoring events. So it just, it was kind of, the decision was made for me. And um, whereas I, I suppose if I'd had someone like yourself, been able to go, right, okay, where's the block? We know what the block is. So let's work on that. Um, maybe we would have been able to remove it and who knows, I might have been an Olympian, but that wasn't to be. It's a really uh, tricky one to say because obviously when you've had an injury, the area is weakened. So if you had pushed it, there's a possibility you'd have re-injured anyway. And that's it's, mentally it's, the problem. Yeah, and maybe it was my body's way of saying, no, don't, because <laughs> it's not right. <laughs> it's, um, it's really in- interesting coming from a horse riding perspective. Injury is such a massive part of being a horse rider, which sounds quite ridiculous, but whether it's yourself or your horse, so many people have their kind of dreams derailed by injury and things like ligament injuries in particular. I mean, they can take 
months and months and months of such careful work that when you try and get back to it there's Mm. this frustration where the rest of your body is so ready and your mind might even be ready um, but there's this little part of your body that you're just not sure you can rely on 100 percent yeah, and, and it must be, I mean, for me, it was just me. If something broke on me, that was it for you. It must be even more frustrating when it's not even you, it's the animal, and yeah, you can't compete with another animal. So they're injured, and you know they're going to get better, but it's going to take a long time to, that must be f- mega frustrating because it's completely out of your hands then as well. You you can't deal with the mindset of a of a horse, so to speak, I suppose. No, you can't. And you do hear stories of people, um, even on our Olympic teams, who have to pull out because of their horses being injured. And sometimes there are other horses that you can ride, but not always, because Mm. for them to be trained in the way that is necessary can be quite difficult. So they're not always around. So yeah, Yeah. injury is um, one of those horrible, horrible things that takes away our control of the situation, I think, and makes it really challenging. Yeah, definitely. So once you decided the second time around that athletics probably wasn't for you, how mm-hmm. did you manage that final decision? Um, cold turkey um, was kind of the way I went went with it. So like I said, I replaced it with another addiction. So I, I literally threw myself into radio work um, and learning what I could and how, because I just came as a complete novice. I'd never done anything like that at all, ever. Um, so I learned desks and mixing and producing and audio production and all those kind of things that were not essential to being a presenter, but were useful tools to, of the trade to learn as you went along. And so I just threw myself completely into that. And because I was throwing myself into that, I was able to step away from the athletics and not, like I say, maybe it's because I replaced it. It wasn't something I missed massively. I know the guys on the team used to ask about me and what I used to get up to. Um, and I still stayed friends with everybody. And I, I continued to coach for a little while and all that kind of stuff. Um, until I moved away from the area, really. So I didn't completely cut ties with it, but I'd I'd stopped competing to the level I wanted to compete at. Um, And then when I moved south, I I ended up piling on weight and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, that is one of the biggest problems with injuries, (laughs) is that change in action level. Yeah. um, I mean, for me, so I I came south. I was offered a a job on a radio station in in Newbury, um, which is just down the road from where I live now. Um, and when I went there, I, I'd kind of been to the, gone to the gym on a regular basis, but not massively. I was trying to stay active, but not hugely. And then I moved south and it was away from family, um, away from all my friends. Um, and it took me a while to kind of bed in. And in that period of time of bedding in, I, I piled it on. Um, I went up to 140 odd kilos in weight and that was just purely diet. And then there was one day, that I came back to athletics and basically I was watching the world championships on the TV. And I remember sat there watching people I'd, I used to compete with. And I was like, I live in a townhouse and I've just sweated walking up three flights of stairs and you're still doing that. What in God's name is going on? I'm going to have to sort this out. Um, and I contacted the local athletics club and they were like, please come along, compete for us, whatever you want, just have some fun get back to enjoying it again. And so that's exactly what I did, which is how I ended up doing master's athletics and started coaching again. And that was a nice way of being able to pass on some of the stuff that I'd learned as a younger athlete, um, but also some of the 
stuff that you'd learn at being a bit of an older person um, and these new techniques that had come in like mindset coaching and, and all those kind of stuff that you could say to people, right, I think you need to speak to somebody because you could recognize they could go somewhere, but they needed a little bit of help to push it further. Oh, it's amazing to be able to give back. Yeah, absolutely. I've, and I've been really lucky with, with the athletes that I've been able to coach. They've all been excellent. Um, I've had a couple of guys go on to compete for GB. Um, I, I convinced a couple of them, although their parents weren't keen on the idea, but they, they went anyway. I convinced a couple of them to do scholarships in America. They were offered full scholarships and, and went off and, and studied over there. And they've come back and they're still training hard and competing. Um, I might hasten to add they're no faster than they were when they were training with me, uh, but uh, <laughs> they obviously got they got stuff from it, that, and that's the main thing. They definitely um, have got got stuff from going overseas and, and training. And so yeah, I've been very lucky with who I've been handed to coach. Um, but then yeah, it's it's still something I really enjoyed doing. That's awesome that you can still enjoy it. I think the weight gain issue is is an interesting one when it comes to anxiety as well. Um, a lot of my clients report a lot of weight issues because anxiety and that almost that lack of motivation to exercise and kind of keep on top of things like diet can be a real issue. And it's something that I struggle with massively whenever it comes around to marathon training whenever I've done a marathon there's always that period afterwards where you don't feel like you need to do very much and there's always that period afterwards where you're still eating in the way that you were whilst you were training but you're definitely not expending the right level of energy so <laughs> it's a bit of a challenge and this yeah, year was great fun because of course the April marathon got cancelled and we were in the middle of lockdown so when they announced that they were doing the October one um, as a virtual one there was part of me that was like oh my goodness I'm gonna have to drag my <laughs> larger arse around and over now for 26.2 miles so it's a it's an easy thing to get dragged into I think but the, the massive positive I guess you can take from that is and everybody else who did it is you actually had the motivation to do it even without 60,000 other people around you making sure that you did it you stepped out your front door and went off and had a bit of a plod for 20, I say a bit of a plod, 26 and a half miles. Um, yeah, 26.2 miles, isn't it, or whatever it is. Um, that's a long way. Um, and and anybody who achieved to do that in October, is, um, I certainly take my hat off to them. And your other half, did he do an ultra or something? Or Listeners won't know this, but we might as well go there. My husband is a chiropractor. And he's also somebody who's very into Tough Mudder, but it never ended at Tough Mudder. It became Toughest Mudder and then it became Europe's Toughest Mudder, which is like an overnight <laughs> thing. And then Toughest, toughest Mudder. <laughs> this year it became World's Toughest Mudder Lockdown Edition, which was 24 hours of running. So, yes. Of course. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of my old coaches, he was an ultra runner. And it, I mean, his mindset was just something phenomenal. 62 miles and he'd do it in eight hours and you're just like how do you just keep going at that pace it's just like i switch off i just i just, yeah. just do it it just yeah it becomes just... the opposite of mindfulness you're almost um choosing not to engage in the present moment which is an interesting skill and it can be useful in certain situations the main reason i kind of wanted to bring that up was because you mentioned about getting to the point where you were struggling to get up the stairs and i know for a lot of clients who have got themselves into the position where they're not in the place they want to be. And actually they're starting to realize this is quite a bad place. I think it's quite useful for them to know that you can go from 
really quite high level athlete to not very fit at all and then still kind of build it back up and enjoy getting back into sport again uh, yeah 100 percent um I mean, I did have that click point. A lot of people don't have that switch where just suddenly they go, hang on, there's something wrong here. Um, and they just continue and continue with that vicious circle. But for me, it was sitting down and watching those people I knew and going, hang on, this is this is wrong. Um, I'm 30 years old and I'm sweating as I walk up the stairs. And I was, yeah, I was very lucky especially with the club that I fell back into. It was very much like the club that I came from. Um, I used to be in a club called Hull Spring at Harriers. It was very family orientated. It was a really friendly club and became one of the best clubs in, in the country at the time. Um, it sadly no longer exists as a track and field club. It kind of amalgamated with all the other clubs from Hull and became something else. But I was very lucky that I went from that to another club that was not necessarily the same, but it was still very family, family orientated. Um, and... They just kind of welcomed you with open arms. Really, you could you could get a club that might not do that. Um, but I was I was very fortunate in that aspect. I was kind of fell from one to the the same thing. So it felt very familiar when I went back. And yeah, um, I, just, I I was I think I was lucky that I also just continued to enjoy it. I never stopped enjoying athletics. Just my body didn't really want me to to do it, and my mindset wasn't in that place of I wanted to continue. But then, like I say, I've started competing again and, and started enjoying it again. Um, and so, yeah, I did it for another... I stopped doing athletics about three years ago. Um, so I did it for another 10 years. And I still coach, um, just I do it distance coaching now um, because the guys I coach now are old enough and ugly enough to either do the sessions or not. Um, so, And they know that. But then, then now and again, I'll turn up and work on the technique or, or things like that. But generally, it, I've just been very fortunate. I think the, the clubs I was part of made a huge difference to me continuing with my with the sport in the first place. I think even back when, when I got injured to, to now as well, um, with, with Team Kent in Newbury, I was. I, I think it's the people you surround yourself with. Definitely, so it yeah, makes so a it big difference. Like support network, really. There, it's finding mm -hmm. people that can kind of help you enjoy the things that you want to do. Hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot else I could add to that. To be honest, there were on, on both sides sides of the coin with with the old club and the new club. They were very very supportive in in every aspect. It wasn't you weren't there to be an international athlete. You were there to enjoy athletics. And if you happen to be an international athlete off the back end of it, then that was an added bonus. And it was nice and, and all that kind of stuff and the accolades that came with it. But let's be honest, there's, it's the same as footballers. Every little boy wants to be a footballer or wants to be a professional rugby player or what have you. They're not all going to make it. Um, and so I was in a fortunate position where I was one of the ones who probably could have done, but there's, thousands of people like me who wouldn't have even come close but they still enjoy doing track and field and I think sometimes that's where the perfectionist aspect comes into it is understanding that you might not be the best at whatever it is that you enjoy doing uh, but you can still enjoy doing it and as much as we'd all like to be the best ultimately yeah just being able to enjoy it and enjoy the atmosphere of it really and enjoy the people that are involved in it as well yeah and and decathlon was a, a great way of me doing that as well because because like I say, it was there wasn't many offers. And even now, you go off and do a decathlon, even at my age, if I wanted to, I could go off and do decathlons. And 
it's still like a tight-knit community and it's still like a family. Um, and I don't know if you've ever watched the multi-events at the Olympics or the World Championships and things like that. They compete for two days and then they will all go do a lap of honour together because the whole point is you've gone through sheer hell for two days together. So you all deserve the round of applause. You're all a family. Whereas you do the 100 metres and it's Usain Bolt going, yeah, I'm brilliant. Thank you very much. I'll do my thing and, and saying how... But the decathlon's completely different. Yes, one person's won the gold medal, but you've all made had an achievement by getting it getting through those two days without a falling apart and actually be doing pretty well as well, which is quite nice. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Uh, that supportive atmosphere sounds sounds really nice. Yeah, and it runs through the events as well, so you could maybe do a, a jump in the high jump, and somebody would say actually if you try this and and that then you'll probably get it and then you'll try this and that and you'll get it and you wouldn't again you wouldn't get that necessarily so much in other events because you're a high jumper and you're there to beat the competition so why the hell would you coach them whereas the i don't know why the decathlon's so different but you are you are all there together and you're all there to help each other out yes you've got your coach necessarily in the crowd who can shout things down to you but generally you're there to help each other and support each other through those two days of hell yeah that's amazing i mean i'm not brave enough to be a three-day eventer uh, because cross country does terrify me and i think that's okay <laughs> um but yeah you'll find well, yeah. in those events they'll spend three days together and some of the parties in the evenings are frankly quite concerning but it's that same kind of atmosphere of like everyone's here, everyone's trying to achieve what they want to achieve, um, but also it's meant to be fun mm. and we're meant to be enjoying it. Yeah, no, no, no matter what level you're at, you're meant to enjoy it 100%. Um, and yeah, there's many a story I could tell of the um, the weekends away um, with, with all the teams together and stuff like that, but those are for another story. <laughs> Different kind of podcast, that one. Yeah, what goes on tour stays on tour. <laughs> Let's go back to something a bit more um, mental health related. Mm-hmm. How has the lockdown been for you? So having had this kind of history of lots of activity, a period of less activity and then going back to activity, how have you found this kind of staying inside, not doing as much? Wow, really? So I've got a toddler. So the very first one was interesting. Um, he wasn't, it was just over one when the first lockdown hit. It was one one and four months um and so I was able to let him just kind of do his own thing a little bit while I did some exercise I was doing Joe Wicks and stuff like that like thousands or millions of other people around the globe um and that was kind of my exercise and then I'd take him for a walk and that would be another element of exercise the second lockdown happened and I kind of I did continue a little bit I didn't do loads and um, the November lockdown this is so I, I did I did a couple of weeks of exercise and then I lost motivation this time around um so everybody kind of gets a rough idea of when we're talking right now we are into week number three aren't we um of the latest lockdown yeah my brain's not really sure whether we are or not yeah no we're definitely we're into week number three of the latest lockdown and I've only just done my first training session and we were in tier four before Christmas so I haven't done a training session where my where my gym was was in tier four I haven't done a training session since about five days before Christmas so I've nearly had a full month of doing nothing and I feel shocking (laughs) which is not a good thing um and so today was the day where I just went I've got to do something. Um, so I, I did 
some exercise. Um, my, my toddler's with the childminder. He's taken to, for some reason, really hating it when daddy tries to do any exercise um, to the point of literally going into true meltdown mode. Um, if I do a press up or anything like that. Um, wow. So I can't do anything. Can't do anything when he's around. Um, so yeah, so today was the day where I just said, right, enough is enough. I'm gonna again a bit like the um, the athletic side of things. Enough is enough. I'm gonna have to do something because um, I do feel better when I do it, and I, I sleep better, and I feel more energized. I have to say, yeah. I found that my motivation comes. It seems to come in waves, and I'm currently in a mm. down wave where I don't have a huge amount of motivation, um, and it can be really tricky because I get a lot of energy by exercising with other people. So I play in a women's rugby team. And for me, that period of time that we're training, because we train for a couple of hours, because we do both contact and we do touch rugby as well. Just not being able to do that suddenly puts the whole week out of routine. Um, and I also yeah. do pole dancing, which is a group activity as well. And just not having those couple of things that really get you going for that week has been quite a massive change for me. Even though things like horse riding, I'm still able to do, um, but you haven't had all the other things to like get you going. Yeah, definitely. And when I you go to the gym, I train with somebody else, um, a friend of mine called Austin, and we do spare each other on. He's a lot bigger than me. He's a lot stronger than me. But being a former athlete, I'm able to push him and he's able to push me. And we've got the same kind of mindsets. And that's really nice. And we still do text each other during lockdown. It's like, what are you up to? How are you getting on? And we've both been in the, in the I can't be asked. I'm just eating Christmas cake. <laughs> yeah. And cheese. Yeah, it's tricky. And it's Definitely. tricky thing for um, horse riders in particular, for those who are going to be listening, because we're kind of given advice not to be or put ourselves in a position where we might be a medical emergency because the NHS is under mm. so much pressure at the moment. A lot of the advice and the guidance that we're given is basically don't do anything risky, which when horses are around is a little bit difficult to judge effectively what is yeah. going to be a risk and what isn't. So there's just a lot of like feeling... Like there's so many challenges to actually doing something that you start to feel like it's not worth it. But then, as you said, when you make yourself do it, you feel so much better afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel better today. It, it's not, I used, I used to always say, it's not when I'm doing this, the, the actual sessions because I, those used to make me feel utterly horrendous. I, I used to be able to go around my athletics track where I used to train and say, I've thrown up there and I've thrown up there and there and there. Um, but it's it's normally, like you say, it's afterwards. I, I get that shower and then maybe that's when the endorphins maybe start to kick in a little bit more. So um, you don't feel like you're a sweaty mess anymore. And it's at that point where I'm like, yeah, I'm really, really glad I did that now. Um, so yeah. Until the next morning when you get up and you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I am not looking forward to the doms tomorrow morning at all. Because uh, they, they will definitely kick in. So in terms of mental health in general, in what way would you say that lockdown has affected you? The first one, it was good to have um max around so i took on completely looking after because my wife's an nhs key worker and so we have a childminder um, and she has other children and their classes in nursery but they're based in our house and so it didn't feel right to send max in when we were in that situation where we really really didn't know anything about coronavirus and so i took on having max all the time um so i had him all the time so most people had this little wobble and a breakdown kind of almost about week two um, of the original lockdown because it was like okay this is great this is great oh hang on this isn't going away and we're into week three now and people were starting to get a bit kind of 
upset about the fact that they were they were locked down and not able to go out other than once a day, and we had all that glorious weather as well. Whereas I had Max to concentrate on, so my wobble didn't come till about week nine when I just wanted to throw him off the balcony because he was annoying the hell out of me. Uh, <laughs> but um, generally, coping with it, as I don't know, maybe I brought elements of the athletics kind of mindset into it. Um, it just, it's again, it's been one of those. Well, we've just got to get on with it. I know we don't like it. And I know there's loads of people up in arms about it and conspiracy theories and everything else. But the fact of the matter is, it is what it is. You whinging about it is not going to change it. Um, and I don't want to get political about it, but like it's the same as Brexit. You can't change the result. So there's, it, it's good to have your voice heard and say, I don't agree with the result, but it's not going to change the result. If you could do that, Usain Bolt would have ran the Olympic final back whenever it was he was disqualified twice so that he could actually win the Olympic final. It just You can't run a race until you win. And so maybe it's that ethos in my head, in my mindset of my athletics background as a, if I lose, I lose. So maybe it was that ethos of, I don't like it. It's not great. We can only go out one today, but it is what it is. And so I might as well make the most of it and the best of it and crack on. Um, and keep on enjoying what I have rather than wasting my time fretting and getting pissed off about it. Um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's like I, you must have seen the the um, the meme and things like that that go out about, which is if you had so much money, that's the equivalent of having the same amount of money in a day. And if somebody took £80 of it, would you be cheesed off? Now think of it as the day you have this many seconds in the day. If somebody took 80 seconds and cheesed you off in those 80 seconds, would you allow it to piss you off with it for the rest of the day? Or would you just crack on and, and try and live a normal life? And so it's the same. I think it's kind of the same ethos, really. I know there's a lot to be cheesed off about with, with COVID-19 and the way it's been handled and everything else like that. But it is what it is. And they're telling us we're in lockdown. We're in lockdown whether we agree with it or not. So you might as well make the best of that lockdown period rather than just getting cheesed off about it. Um, and so, yeah, I think that athletics mindset of coming second sometimes and losing maybe paid dividends. One of the biggest conversations I've had with clients over the last, well, nearly a year now, is the pros and cons of constantly watching the news and reading things online. And not because I particularly want them to do anything in, you know, in particular, it's up to them how they want to live their lives, but just really considering what the potential pros and cons of that is and whether it might be more beneficial to really just focus on your own life and what you can do in those situations and enjoy yeah. what's available rather than yeah, the, getting stressed on a global a, level. There was, there was a TV show last night and it, I, I didn't watch it. Um, I think it was called About Coronavirus or something. It was on ITV and it was all about how China had and like hidden it away and stuff and then it become more public and I just happened to be on Twitter at one point last night posting some content um, and I went onto the trending page and this popped up and just so much venom coming out from people uh, about this TV show and how much then they hated Boris because of X, Y and Z and you're like I know this is all pent up but just like you say concentrate on what you can do the positives rather than always looking at the negative aspect. So in terms of uh, mental health and things as well, you've often mentioned mental health 
in regards to what it is that you do now. Um, mm -hmm. So for people listening, you work as a social media coach now and run an agency that can do video, content production, um, content creation, quite a lot of things that you're able to do. Um, and you have yeah. your regular podcast as well, um, talking people through about how they can maximize their social media. And one of the key things that you've mentioned a few times that I found really interesting is this fear of doing things. So this fear of posting things, fear of judgment, uh, fear of getting it wrong. Um, I think you did one the other day where you wrote something on a piece of paper. That's right, yeah. So fear of perfection. So people people won't post content unless it's absolutely perfect. It's, it's an excuse um, and it's a, it's a valid one sometimes, but a lot of people... So one of the things I, I talk very passionately about is give value with your social media content, whether you're building your own personal brand or a business or, or, or what have you. If you're trying to build your social media to a point where people actually are listening to what you've got to say, it's all about number one, knowing your niche and number two, giving value, um, especially if you're doing it organically. Um, and so a lot of people won't put their content out there because they've got the value to give, but they're worried about it being perfect. Now, if you're trying to sell a product, if I was trying to sell this iPod, then yes, the piece of content that I want to put out selling an iPod needs to be perfect because it's selling. But if what I'm trying to do is give value, it doesn't necessarily matter so much as long as the value is there. There's a famous YouTuber called Casey Neistat, and he used to create some really great stories. And his saying was always, it doesn't matter if it's filmed on a potato as long as the story is good. And a great um, aspect of that is the Blair Wish Project. It doesn't look great but the story is incredible and that's what tied everybody into it was the, the, the fantastic internet marketing campaign they put together but the story was also interesting that's why people went to see it and so yeah the other day i sat down and went look this is how easy it is to create content and it doesn't have to be perfect and i draw drew a little stick man and a speech bubble coming out of him and just wrote it doesn't have to be perfect within the speech bubble and then i took a photo of it and i posted it and yeah um, I did a little video of me drawing it and posted that as a story. And, and so it doesn't have to be the most amazing piece of content, but it's the message behind it. It's the, sometimes it's the video and it's a story, but generally it's the message behind it, the value that you've got to give rather than hoping the color grading's right or the phot photograph's absolutely pristine and perfect and all those kind of things. Because if you do get caught up in that, it's got to be perfect mode, you end up never posting anything. Um, it's why a lot of people <clears throat> don't go live, isn't it? Um, so, yeah. But <laughs> we had this conversation before I pressed record for those people listening. <laughs> I like doing the podcast because I don't have to put makeup on. So now I've just been outed. But it's fine. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is it's why a lot of people will go live and they get worried about what they're going to say and whether what they've got to say has got any value and, and all those kind of things and not being a mindset coach is not something I delve too deeply into um, but I do live by a mantra of it's none of my business what anybody else thinks of me um, and that wasn't always there um, when I first started in radio I used to really value what other people thought until they all started saying the same thing and it was a little bit bully-esque almost. It wasn't, you'll never make it, but they, they were all finding different faults. Um, and I remember one guy saying to me, did you used to have a speech impediment? And I was like, no. And he says, well, do you sound like you did? And things like that. <laughs> things like that. Um, 
So, yeah, and again, it comes back to the, the athletic side of things. It was probably that constantly finishing second all the time. It was more of a sticky middle, middle finger up and go, screw you, I'll show you. Um, and I did. I went off and did national radio in the end, and I did TV and stuff like that. So, yeah, screw you with my speech impediment. I got over it. <laughs> it's really interesting from a mental health point of view because there's a few different things that I notice in people with anxiety that I felt was quite similar. One of the things I thought was comparison is quite a difficult thing because it's difficult not to compare yourself to popular accounts that are very polished um, mm. and obviously use a lot of very professional photography and a lot of professional um, yeah, cinematography, I guess. So it's difficult not to compare yourself to other people. Um, and it is difficult to take feedback sometimes. Yeah, I mean, the feedback aspect, definitely. Um, I remember sitting down with one brand and she even said afterwards, she said, if everything you had said wasn't actually smack bang on, I'd have probably punched you in the face <laughs> because you, you, you basically you sat down and pulled us apart, but it was right. Um, and with with feedback, it has to, you have to be in the right place um, to, to hear it. If you... It could still be 100% right, but if as a person you're not ready to hear what you're hearing, you just shut off. Um, so, yeah, that, that, was, that was certainly an interesting one. Comparing yourself to others is, is a hard one. What you've got to remember is a lot of these accounts do have a lot of money behind them, and your brand starting out, so you don't have the income yet to have someone like a D-Rock, like Gary V has, follow you around and film you, and you don't have a team of designers to create your content and give it to you so that you can post it natively and all those kind of things. Um, and eventually, hopefully, you will get to a point where you can do that. But one of the big things I try and coach people through is what I call how to nine times your social media, which is, look, you, you don't have all of these great utilities that all these big people have. You don't have the expensive cameras. You don't have everything, but you do have a mobile phone and you do have your voice and you do have a camera on there and you can write a blog on it and things like that. And you do have something to say. You are a voice of authority in your area. So make sure people can get to hear what you've got to say and, and the value you've got to give. But you're going to have to be clever about it because you don't have a team of people working with you. So make the content you've got work harder for you. Repurpose it. That might take you a little bit of time to learn the skill set, but you've got a podcast here. Some people would want to watch it as a video or listen to it as a video on YouTube. So what do you do? Well, you turn it into a video then as well. So you make an, an audiogram so you can post it on there. Do you want people to listen to it from other platforms where they can't listen to the whole thing? Yes, I do. So in that case, you make an audiogram and you post it onto Instagram. And so it's about making the content work harder for you. Um, but just remembering that, you're not always going to have people jumping on a jet and things like that in your feed and, and looking up to them because it is hard to see that. Um, but the, then a lot of those people, not all of them, but a lot of them are faking it anyway. Uh, fake it till you make it was, um, was a big thing about four or five years ago until people started kind of cottoning on. Unfortunately, there's still people who believe it is, is re very real um, and it's not. There's, there are stories of people getting arrested, of jumping over the, the fences at airports to have a photograph taken in front of a private jet and then trying to run away uh, and stuff like that. So, so don't, always, don't always believe what you see. And you can hire a car. You can hire a nice-looking house on Airbnb and have a load of con – Joe Wicks does it, but he's quite open about it. He'll hire a lovely-looking house in Surrey, 
and then go and film a lot of content there and then and then go home to his family and, and everything else at his house. But he's quite honest about it. Some people just aren't quite so honest. So there's a few good tips there, really, about being aware of the potential veneers that are covering um, what mm. might be really true. So really analysing whether your comparison is factually correct. Um, and then in terms of feedback, I was thinking as well, where it can sometimes be... Um, challenging is I think where you have to think about where that feedback is coming from because unfortunately the internet does open itself up to uh, a range of different people some of whom are maybe more emotionally stable than others and some of whom have better intentions than others and maybe some of the feedback or the trolling that you're receiving isn't really about you (laughs) and your content it's more an insight into them potentially yeah, and one of the things I say is, especially if you're getting trolls, is is imagine how bad their day must be going to sit and watch your video and then tell you how shit your video actually is. Um, and again, it, it boils down to the, it's none of my business, what anybody else thinks of me, but also uh, one of the things I try to pull into the mindset of thinking, again, not really working on mindset too much, but of, well, they've sat and watched my content <laughs> and if that means the algorithm, the algorithm's seen them watch my content and then they've commented. The algorithm's not clever enough to understand that they've said something derogatory. It just sees a comment. So actually, I could play the game here, and this is generally what I do, is I try and kill them with kindness. A lot of people will just kind of ignore them or block them, and there's no right way or wrong way. I'm not saying anything like that, but I will try and kill them with kindness by going back to them, but being really nice, and then they'll come back to me, and then I'll go back to them, and you end up having this conversation, and the algorithm sees that, regular commenting, and goes, this content must be great. We'll push it out further. And and then I just finish it all off with, uh, well, thanks ever so much for making sure more people see my stuff. And then that's that. So, yeah, I try and work with trolls in, in a couple of different ways. It can be quite funny, really. I, I get them very occasionally on sometimes when I put out tips and things like deep breathing tips and then you'll get some content about how rubbish like breathing is. And you'll find yourself thinking, well, it's quite useful, firstly. And uh, ultimately, it's got them thinking about it. So never know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. And that's the thing. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, I mean, it does boil back down to the how bad is their day to, to have to do that. Um but yeah, I tend not to worry too much about trolls and I try not to let anybody I work with worry about them um, because there's multiple different ways of, of dealing with it. And it's you eventually get used to, when you see the type of comment that's come through, how you should deal with it. Um, sometimes it's just like, well, that's just malicious and you just you block them and bin them off and report them and what have you. But sometimes you can tell, especially when they put more effort into their, com- into their comment because you can tell when they've definitely watched the video so they've obviously put the effort into watching it and then to say something. So then you can kind of open a conversation with them. If it's just somebody coming in, just being horrible, then yeah, just bin them off. But yeah, if you can open a line of communication, sometimes that might be a good thing. You, you could soon turn them to being part of your community. <laughs> or just give you a fascinating insight. Yes. <laughs> so a very useful thing that I've found um, and find with clients as well is to really think about how much you value the opinion of somebody. Um, Because in our lives, we all have different people who will offer opinions in different ways. Some people are really forceful with them and they'll tell us their opinions and their advice without uh, it really being asked for. Mm. And then obviously there are people that we go to for advice that we usually pay for or are interested in some way. So I think it's also helpful for people to really think about 
how much does this person's advice mean to me and how useful is it to me? Uh, yeah. Because often free, unsolicited advice and feedback is probably not that useful and not really worth considering that much. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, the feedback I used to get from my coaches was always important to me. But if somebody at school had said to me, oh, do this and do that, you know, hang on, what, what, do you, what do you know kind of thing? Uh, so, yeah, it kind of goes back to this, the same ethos of thinking, definitely. And it kind of um, is a big thing in horse riding. For those horse riders that are listening, they'll have a bit of a chuckle now, is that everybody always knows best about how to whatever it is you're having a problem with. Um, but usually the only useful piece of advice is the one that you've actually got from like your trainer that knows you and knows your horse. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. Because they, they know your capabilities and the horse's capabilities and the same as me with athletics and they know what I'm capable of doing and what I can't. They don't know what injuries you've had or so on and so forth. And also where you're at with your journey, which fits in nicely mm. with the social media. I mean, like you said, a brand who is just doing it for themselves is always going to have a different set of rules and set of parameters than a brand that has a multi-million pound um, department that can do all this stuff. So it's really understanding that different places in their journey are going to have different outcomes. Mm. And the goal might be completely the same, but like you say, the the journey could be, the, the point in their journey could be very, very different. I know for me, my social media um is very erratic and it very much comes second to things like client work and my university work at the moment and that's fine for me right now there'll be a point in the future where it's good for me to do more um, but at the moment where everything is kind of ticking over nicely it's not that important but yeah I think it's just being very aware of where you are in your Mm. journey and what's best for you at that moment yeah finding that finding that sweet spot is is definitely important especially when you've got so many other thing, important things in life. And when Max came along, um, that, that was way more important than me concentrating on posting multiple, multiple, multiple pieces of content every day. I mean, I still do post a lot, uh, don't get me wrong, but I'm, I'm, I'm into that flow of being able to create regular content on a regular basis now, whereas when I first started, um, maybe not so much. And when Max first came along, I probably wasn't posting as much as I should do. And then I kind of slowed down a bit and then I found my, my footing again. That word should, we ban that word on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) That's a good word to ban. So for those people who are interested in potentially growing their social media, where can they find out more information about you? Um, all over the place. Pretty, I am everywhere. I've, obviously, um, I mean, one of the big things is I, I always say is I have to practice what I preach. So um, there is no point in me saying, oh, you should be posting this and that and the other and, and then not actually doing it myself. So I am on every single social media platform. Um, if you just search how to nine times your social media, you'll generally find me. Um, I do do the social media podcast. Um I'll, I'll throw you a bunch of links and then if, if you're happy to, then you can stick them in the section below because um, I, I am all, I'm, I'm all over the shop. And the, the, the main thing is, is that I try to create content that will allow people to digest it the way want, they want to digest it. So if they read, they can read a blog. If they want to, they can scroll through Instagram. If they want to listen, they can listen. If they want to watch a video, they can watch a video um, because it just then it puts you in, in a position where you can consume the content and the value of the way you would normally consume it. Um, one of the things one of my bugbears was from schooling is that you were always talked at and that was it you you couldn't learn the way you wanted to learn um and I think that's the wrong way about doing that kind of thing 
Um, but we won't go into that because I have other <laughs> theories and viewpoints on schooling anyway. So, yeah. No, that's great. So find your favourite uh, social media and have a look for how to nine times your social media. And if yeah. he's not on your favourite social media, then feel free to send him a message and harass him about that. Yeah, tell me off. Absolutely. <laughs> I think I'm on everything. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast for notifications on future episodes. And if you have the time to write a quick review, then that would be greatly appreciated. To find out more about me and the work that I do, please head to www.anxietytoconfidence.com. That's the number two, anxietytoconfidence.com.